are presently continuing in our study of the subject of discipleship and um, the matter of uh, schism and discipleship. We began on that part of the subject last time and hopefully we'll finish it up. I want you to turn with me to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. Now, what we demonstrated last week in our study, primarily introductory, was the fact that there is a proper and right schism, or some people pronounce it schism, in the church. In other words, God has given to us unity, and there is a very definite unity, not union, but um, a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that God has told us to keep. Uh, we are not to be divisive from the standpoint of interpersonal relationships. We talked about that a bit. We are to recognize that the positional unity that we have is to be worked out on a practical level. Uh, we're not to have fussing and feuding and fighting in the church. It's not uh, becoming the, those that are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, not be able to get along on those major issues. But we talked about the fact that doctrine, true doctrine, as opposed to false doctrine or to compromise of doctrine, that that uh, true doctrine will many times produce a split among believers. And it is proper and right, uh, though, of course, God's purpose would be to bring those that split off into the fold, into a point of true doctrine. Nevertheless, it is proper and right uh, for the doctrine to be stated in such a way that it separates the sheep from the goats in a fellowship of believers. Now that's not a very happy kind of situation, particularly um, in when you start thinking in terms of the fact that people can develop interpersonal relationships that are healthy and good and, and uh, uh, that seem to be um, very much in keeping with the, with the Word of God. And um, when something comes along where the Word of God is taught, clearly taught, and uh, there are those that take issue with that which the Word of God teaches and, and stand in opposition to the Scripture and stand in opposition to the authority of the church, then you can anticipate that there would ultimately be the schism that is a very normal thing in the church of Jesus Christ. And it was found in the early church. And um, it was found far more than we'd like to believe. I think that, that you know, it would be nice to, uh, to, to have God gloss over all of the failure of people and, um, and paint uh, a sort of a fairy tale type of picture of, uh, of, of plaster saints uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But unfortunately, God takes all the varnish off and he shows nothing but raw wood. And he demonstrates what we really are and the things that do happen. And the marvelous thing was that here in the early church, where they had, if you please, a, an absolute authority in the hands of the apostles, on the lips of the apostles, an authority that were really the keys to the kingdom, 
that apostolic authority, which because of that authority and because of divine revelation were right in what they did, they produced a healthy amount of schism. I, I, I think that uh, uh, one reason why I really didn't want to um, have all that we said last week and then all that we have to say this week separated. I would have liked to have just kept going last week and uh, put it all in one big package because all of this background is necessary and needed so that we can move into this passage and begin to look at some of these passages that reveal the schism that took place because of false doctrine that came into the church in the early days. But keep in mind that the true unity of the Spirit is separated around true doctrine. There are people that say today, and I hear this and read it on uh, more occasions than I would like to, there are people that say, we don't want doctrine because doctrine divides. Well, now they say they don't want doctrine, that's not good. When they say doctrine divides, they're correct. Doctrine divides. But they're saying, let's just have one big norm called love. And that's what Dr. McGee calls sloppy agape. <laughs> sloppy agape. It's all just love, everybody. If you study scripture right, you'll discover that love, God's love, the love that is spoken of in scripture, is always a discerning love and that there is always a balance between truth and love. We are to always speak the truth and we're always speaking in love. But in order to have the truth spoken in love, you can't have sloppy agape. If someone is out of line, he must be disciplined. If someone is wrong doctrinally, he must be corrected. If he does not respond biblically to that correction, there's a very strong word over in the book of Titus, uh, particularly in one translation, which says this. Just get this now. and Put this in your flyleaf of your memory. It says, after the first and second warning, then put him out. First and second warning, you give him the benefit of two warnings because he has a moral twist and he knows it. That's an interesting translation. He has a moral twist and he knows it. Does that sound very nice? Sure not sloppy agape. See, it's the truth. Now it's to be done in love. There's a biblical way of handling situations and it should always be followed and it should be done in love. And all the way through. But it does not mean that the church of Jesus Christ has to compromise doctrinal issues. It does not have to compromise doc doctrinal issues. It can stand on the truth of the word of God. I mentioned last week, and I just want to reiterate it, that the major schism that we find in the church of Jesus Christ today is, on one side, those that claim to be with, with Calvin... And on the other side, those that claim to be with Arminius. 
And the interesting thing is that Arminius and Calvin did not have schism over doctrine. They had a personality clash. The major issue that could not be worked out between Arminius and John Calvin was a personality conflict and these fellows did not get along and they did not resolve their personality differences biblically. The result was that the gap has widened over the years so that now there are two major sides to the issue. And one side has gone one direction, another side has gone the other direction. Obviously, we are in the Calvinistic camp if we put ourselves with that kind of a division. Because we believe, for instance, in the security of the believer and election and predestination, these things balanced, of course, with the matter of free will and all of that. We'll be talking a lot about that in the book of Ephesians. But the point that I'm making is that that whole split in the church probably could have been prevented if it hadn't been that we had two fellows, both of which wanted the preeminence. That was the problem. Even as in Third John with Diotrephes, there was who wanted to have the preeminence, this was had happened with Calvin and Arminius. It's a matter of history. And so when people start talking about the differences doctrinally, those things may have been worked out because really a balance is needed between the two anyway. But those probably would have been worked out if it were not for the fact of a personality conflict. Don't ever have schism in the church because two brethren can't get along. I beseech Eudeus, I beseech Syndicate, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. There is no basis for schism in the church over that kind of an issue. The basis for schism in the church is when there is a true doctrinal error that must be ferreted out. All right, now, we looked at Acts 20, read through it, and just got started on it. We mentioned the fact that Paul's having a pastor's conference with those that are uh, the pastors at Ephesus, the church staff at Ephesus, lay leaders and, and uh, those that are given honorarium met together. They're called the elders, they're called the overseers, they're called the pastors or feeding, they're told that they're to feed. Those three things all to the same group of people. All right? Now we want to talk tonight about the cause of schism and the cure. And we want to find out what God's Word says about this here. So we'll start here in verse 28 and 29, just reading those two verses. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you episkopos, hath made you overseers to feed, to poimain, to pastor the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that for the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. All right? There are two basic causes for schism. First of all, there are the false teachers... From without. 
false teachers from without. Verse 29, grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Look at several passages with me. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous or ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth bad fruit. Therefore, by, your fruit, by their fruits ye shall know them. Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, warned that there was the danger of the ravenous wolves coming in in disguise, seeking to make disciples and to get them to follow that which was not the truth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they'll deliver you up to the councils, will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, be not anxious how or what ye shall speak, for it will be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak, and so on. It goes on and talks about the great persecution that comes because of these wolves from the outside that would seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ by deliberate attack. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming or literally masquerading if you want to make a note of it, that's, that's the same word that's used in Romans 12, 2 that says, be not conformed to this world. Don't masquerade like the world. The idea here is that it, it's not showing on the outside what is true of their inner nature. It's not demonstrating that. They're transforming, they're masquerading, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. For no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed. There again, same word. That is, he's masquerading into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers be masquerading as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Again, the grievous wolves, this time dis disguised as the servants of Christ. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. And verses 1 through 3. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who secretly shall bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Notice the truth is evil spoken of. There's a denial of the truth. There's also just a, an antagonism toward the truth. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, buy you and sell you. 
whose judgment now for a long time lingereth not, and their destruction slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, spared not the old world, and so on. If he clobbered Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, and delivered, delivered just Lot, verse 7, uh, then obviously he's, gonna, he's going to take care of the problems of all of these false teachers. Ultimately, they will be brought into judgment. So you see, God is going to take care of them. Now, you know, the interesting thing is the false teachers from without, those that are teaching that which is heresy, those people draw away a certain amount of disciples after them, and they do cause some havoc in the church. But that is not the major reason for schism in the church. In other words, these people, by and large, are not guilty of bringing about splits in the church. What they do is they, they prey upon the weak and they gradually try to draw people into their particular thing. We have some of them knocking on doors um, and uh, they uh, are, are making claims. They're offering to study the Bible with people and this kind of thing. And uh, they're pretty obvious. And most Christians aren't going to be too quickly fooled by this kind of wolf, except when he disguises himself in sheep's clothing. And even then, he still smells like a wolf. And so you, you can't really disguise him uh, completely. So the false teachers from without, though they are a cause, a partial cause, for the schism, are not the major cause. The major cause are the ambitious leaders from within. Now, it's hard in certain scriptures to distinguish from the false teacher from without and those that are within. What you usually have to do is you have to try to determine whether the context is talking about someone who may have been a true believer but got fouled up doctrinally or whether it's a non-believer. In some, some cases, it's very difficult to tell. But what I did was as I went through these passages, I tried to determine whether or not the arising of false doctrine was coming actually from within. In some cases, they were probably unbelievers pretending to be believers. And in that sense, I suppose you could say they were from without. But they were inside the church doing their damage. These people from without are attacking from the outside. The ones from within are coming from within. Some of them believers and have been fouled up. Some of them unbelievers. But nevertheless, they are a problem. Verse 30 tells us that these individuals speak perverse things. That's the first thing. They speak perverse th things. It's the word diastrepho. Diastrepho means to twist. It means to distort. Therefore, they are speaking distorted, twisted things. The second thing is they get a following. One of the motivations behind them is that they want to draw away disciples after them. You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the word draw away, A-P-O-S-P-A-O, 
And if you look down in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, and when we were, uh, it came to pass that after we were parted, uh, the King James there says, gotten, and that is the same word. It is the idea of tearing away. Uh, here's someone who, Paul was so close to these men, and they knew he was going to Jerusalem, and he was going to uh, suffer there, and it was difficult for them to say goodbye. They clung to him. It says in verse 38 or 37, they wept much and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he had spoken. They should see his face no more. They accompanied onto the ship. It came to pass after he had torn himself away. See? And so you see, these people who get a following, they do exactly the same thing. They Here are people that are an integral part of a church and the part of a ministry, and yet they are torn away. They are, they are stripped away from those that have nurtured them and helped them and led them on because these men ruthlessly are trying to get a following. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, there are the parables that speak of the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven, actually. And it speaks in type and picture of the, the church age. It's one of the few revelations of the church age that we have in the Gospels. And it gives to us a picture of a number of things. One, the very first one, was that a man went out and sowed his field. And an enemy came in and sowed the tares. Now, tares and wheat look very much alike as they are growing up. And it's very, the, the, the farmer finding out that this has been done, recognizing that there were tares, he wants to go out and tear up all the tares. When the tares, the, the tares and the wheat were differed in that the wheat, always as it began to form grain, it would, it would bow its head. The tares, because it had no value, no grain in it, would, would stand upright. You could always tell the tares very early as the fruit began to develop. And this farmer looks out there and he recognizes there are tares growing up at the wheat. And he wants to go out and rip it all out. And uh, the, the, the boss man says, no, no, that's not the way to do it. What you do is you wait until the harvest. Guess what? Harvest time comes along then the wheat will be harvested and the tares will just be so much rubbish. It'll separate. That is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ today. I have people say, you know, Pastor, how can you tell which church is right and which church is wrong? Well, sometimes you can't tell. You can evaluate as best you can from the Word of God you'll find a mixture all the way through Christendom. And so if you say that a Baptist church is the right church, well, better not say that because there's, the, there's tares among the wheat. How about Presbyterian? Tares among the wheat. Then you've got some others, I won't name them, you know, but you've got some, you know, that have so many tares you can't find the wheat. And there's some where you've got so much wheat you can hardly find the tares. The point is there are tares and wheat in both. And as tragic as it may seem, there are some that probably are a part of this church who are tares rather than wheat. 
as careful as you try to be and all of the rest of it, nevertheless, there is that possibility. We believe in a regenerate church membership here at Valley Church. We don't believe anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ in a personal way and able to bear testimony of him should be a member of the church. And there's been some fine people that have come to us and could not bear that kind of witness where they were turned down as to membership. And so therefore, we have to realize that, that uh, we're trying to be careful, but we still have the danger of having tares among the wheat. There is a mixture. Now, the background of the city of Ephesus is very interesting in that the Apostle Paul, you remember, went there on a brief journey, on the end of his second missionary journey, stopped off there, left Aquila and Priscilla, then he went on his way, and he said, I'll come back. He came back. In fact, he stayed longer at Ephesus than any other place. When he came back, he found a group of people who were followers of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been long gone, but there have been some that had championed the cause of the baptism of repentance. And uh, so there's a group of people that were followers of John the Baptist. Apostle Paul talked to them, explained to them the difference that the, uh, the idea of believing in uh, the coming of the Messiah um, was uh, past tense now because the Messiah had already come. And he led these guys to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. He began to minister. You remember we studied this earlier. He taught in the synagogue for about three months. And during that time, he presented the claims of Christ. Then the pressure started getting on. It was very clear that there was a division among them, already a split, but now primarily uh, a split between those that were believers and those that were unbelievers. And he went to the school of Tyrannius, and over, for over two years, he ministered in the school of Tyrannius, several hours a day lecturing on those things that had to do with the kingdom of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our Lord. You recall that at that time, God blessed in a marvelous way. Eventually, there was an uproar and all of the rest uh, when they began to cut into the trade of the silversmiths and so on. And when people quit worshiping Diana, who was the, uh, the well-known uh, goddess of fertility, and uh, they began to, to feel the impact of the gospel on their city. They caused a stir. That took approximately three years. The Apostle Paul eventually left under some duress the city of Ephesus. But during this period of time, as the Apostle Paul ministered and preached, there were people of two backgrounds that came to know Jesus Christ. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. The Jews tended toward legalism. Keeping of the law, being circumcised, all of those details. The Gentiles tended toward license. Now I ask you, which is right? <laughs> legalism or license? Well, neither. That's made very clear in Paul's epistle to the Galatian church. Neither legalism nor license are correct? The answer is biblical morality, a biblical standard of living, biblical righteousness, practical righteousness. So after the Apostle Paul left, he sent Timothy to minister to these people. Now, how long Timothy ministered there, we're not sure. When it began, 
uh, we're not uh, exactly positive either, but we know that he ministered there. While he was ministered to those people in the city of Ephesus, where all of this has taken place, Paul wrote him a couple of letters. The last letter to Timothy um, was the letter that was the last letter Paul wrote. I want you to turn to Timothy with me. Just want to look. We can't study it in depth. We just want to look at some of the things that Paul had to tell Timothy he had to do in the church in Ephesus. In the very church where Paul said, beware, because there would be those from without, grievous wolves, and those from within seeking a following. Now notice what happens here. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Don't teach any other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor about that which they affirm. For we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, and then he goes on and explains the concept of legalism versus license. He talks to Timothy about the fact that there are some that were a part of the church there who actually were legalistic. They were desiring to be teachers of the law, but they were fouled up. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience, he's telling Timothy that's what he should do, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that was license. On one hand, you had, you had the concept of legalism. That was wrong. That was false teaching. Then you had the concept of license. That's not all. Look at chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaking expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Imagine that in the church. Again, I say, in the early church? What's going on here? Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. That's legalism. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine unto which thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' tales, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. 
Let's look at chapter 6. Oh, my goodness, all in the same book. Got another one? Chapter 6, verse 3. If any man teach otherwise... Now, what is the otherwise? Well, it's the whole, it's the whole thing that has been taught here. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to a doctrine which is according to godliness, remember, doctrine divides. Anybody who does not teach it the way I preached it, Paul says, he is proud, knowing nothing. Whew, that's quite an accusation. Doting about questions and disputes of words, of which cometh envy, strife, railings, evil suspicions, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. When people get involved in the kind of thing that runs contrary to what the Word of God teaches, you have to deal with it. Now, you've you got to realize, you know, that as near as you can tell, here's, here's Timothy. Timothy must have been a very tender individual. He wasn't the kind of guy that relished a fight. Now, I, Paul probably was. And uh, I don't think Paul ever backed down from anybody. But Timothy, he even tells him, you know, take a little wine for your ulcer. Because, uh, you know, this guy had stomach problems. Kept it all inside of him. And Paul is writing, and in, the, in here writing this letter to his friend, to his son in the faith, Timothy. And what's he telling him? Over and over again. Look out, look out, look out, look out. Here's a problem area, there's a problem area. Got problems. You know something? I think that the reason that the churches of today are not as effective as the early church is because they have failed to look out for the trouble spots. Now, we're not looking for communists under the rug. We're not looking for, we're not looking for, for all kinds of, of cults coming out of our woodwork. It's not a matter of going on a witch hunt. But the point is this, that when people who have worked their way into a reputable place in a church fellowship when those people expound a doctrine which is not true to Scripture, it has to be dealt with. Clearly. Well, what else we got? Paul wrote another letter to Timothy. This time Paul's near death. It's a very tender letter. It's the most personal letter that Paul wrote. In fact, you want to realize how personal it is. At the end of the letter, you see the humanness of Paul because he says, send me a warm coat and the parchments. Paul wanted something to read and something to keep him warm. Paul was really a human being. You know, he wasn't a superstar apostle. He was, he was just a man like you and I. He writes very tenderly to Timothy. He reminds him of some marvelous things that go clear back to the time of Timothy's conversion. And with that kind of a letter, you can breathe a sigh of relief because obviously you're not going to be talking too much about problems, are you? Chapter 2, verse 16. But shun 
profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a gangrene, of whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Now imagine these two guys had a Sunday school class, and in their Sunday school class, they were saying that the resurrection's already taken place. What do you do with people like that? Well, I'll tell you, you've got to take care of that. You've got to deal with it. You've got to shun it. It's fascinating because it says in the verse previous to the one I just read, or to the one that I, at the beginning of this uh, place, study or be diligent, endeavor to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. You rightly divide the word of truth, then you do not have the responsibility. And right, by the way, rightly dividing the word of truth, truth does not mean, does not mean to cut it up into little pieces. It means to, to cut straight. It means to cut it with, with expertise and skill. It means to be an accurate interpreter of the scripture. That's what it means. And so here we have him telling Timothy, you rightly divide the word of truth. And when you do that, it divides. Because you're to shun profane and vain babblings. And after he says this, it says in verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And it goes on from there, giving him all kinds of encouragement and advice. Now listen, the Gnostic cult that was so much a part of the ancient world, the book of Colossians, is addressed to this error. First John uh, is addressed to this error was a prevalent thing. It was a super intellectual thing. The word gnosis is the word for knowledge in the Greek, and the Gnostics were those that claimed to have a superior knowledge. They were the intellects. They were the pseudo-intellectual class. They were the ones that wanted to bring higher criticism into the study of the Word of God in the local church. The result was they were making claims, this was only one of them, that the resurrection is already past. Another thing was that Christ did not have a real body. He did not have a real, true, physical body. That actually, it was, it, it was not really uh, a matter of Christ taking a, a body upon himself, but rather you know, it was a sense in which he uh, came upon a body, but that wasn't really his body. And it was a, a strange thing because they had, they had uh, a bunch of things about angels and all kinds of, of uh, details about that that were really way off. You read about those a bit more in Colossians. So the Gnostic heresy was being addressed here. 2 Timothy 3, first 13 verses. This know also, the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. How do you like that for church members, huh? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it from such turn away. 
Tells you what to do with them. For of this sort are they who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with various lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning faith. But ye shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and patience, persecutions and afflictions which came unto me at, at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall become worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue thou in the things that thou hast learned. And then it goes on and talks about the scripture being God-breathed and all its profit to us. You see, Timothy was warned and warned and warned. Look out. Now, of course, what we have in chapter 3 is gross apostasy. and has to do with those that come from without as well as those from within. Some of you that heard me talk about the People's Temple and Jim Jones, and we use this passage of Scripture, you realize that uh, Jim Jones should have been identified as a false prophet by everybody, even the apostate churches should have recognized it long before he got as far as he did, simply because the minute the guy threw out the Bible, you knew that was wrong if you couldn't spot anything else. There were a lot of other things as well. You should be able to spot someone who's gone this far but nevertheless, there's always that insidious danger. John, in 1 John chapter 2, speaks of the unbeliever who infiltrates the church. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, it says, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, by which we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. He had a problem with some unregenerate people within the fellowship of the church as well. When you go to Third John, you find Diotrephes, who was a true believer without question. But notice what it says. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. He goes on to say that he's, he's going to... Uh, that Demetrius has a good report making a contrast there to this man who had done so much damage. One more passage. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. Beautiful indication of the church of Ephesus and how they handled this kind of thing. It says in verse 2, I know thy works, Ephesus, and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them 
liars. The church at Ephesus dealt with error that tried to creep into their midst. In that pagan city, with a pagan background, with all kinds of, of a hodgepodge of religious influence, intellectualism, and rationalism, and materialism, they were, they were wrought with it on every hand. And yet, because Paul warned the leadership of that church to beware, they were wary. And they dealt with sin. Well now, what's the cure? How can we as a church, as disciples of Jesus Christ, how can we best prevent the encroachment of teachers from without that are false and insidious doctrines from within. How can we do it? Paul touches on something that I think really gives us at least a partial answer in Acts chapter 20. Will you look with me? I want to give you a five-fold caution and cure in the next ten minutes. Just simply touching on these five things that I believe really hit the nail on the head. I'm sure that as we've talked, there's a mixed reaction. I'm sure that some of you have said, well, it never happened to me. Remember the scripture says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Uh, don't be cocky about it. There are some that already know the answer as to how to prevent this. And uh, so you're one jump ahead of me. That's great. There are some of you who wonder if such a thing could ever happen. And uh, I hope you know from a church like the Church of Ephesus that had the privilege of having Paul teach them for three years but still had this kind of problem that it can happen. It can happen anywhere. And probably there are some of you that really could care less one way or another. And so therefore, I hope that you'll prick up your ears and that you'll realize that we as individuals have to prepare ourselves so that there will be nothing of this kind that can happen. And this five-fold safeguard is at least an example from the life of Paul and from his challenge here in this chapter that I think really touches some of the capstone of what's needed if we're to prevent this. The very first thing is make sure you are right with God. See that in verse 28? Take heed therefore unto yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, we read that we're to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. And we're further to continue to look at ourselves to make sure that we're not disqualified, that we're not duds, that we're not phonies, that we're not fake. 1 Corinthians 11.28 tells us that we are to examine ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Now both of those passages of Scripture indicate that it's the believer's prerogative and responsibility to make sure he's right with God. 
you realize that in 1 John chapter 1 we're told that if we walk in darkness, if we're walking, if we're, if we're sin, if we sin and say we're walking in the light, that we're lying and we're deceiving ourselves, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other one, that is one with Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all sin. Well, if you say you don't have sin, you're lying, because there are occasions on which you do find yourself doing that, which gets you out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And 1 John 1, 9 then is given as the, the, the means of cleansing. If we confess our sins, homo legeo, agree with God concerning our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God takes care of the sin issue whenever we'll agree with him that what we've done is sin. There's a lot of people in the church of Jesus Christ that have an argument with God. It always bothers me. It doesn't matter how straight you preach it. Somebody always has an argument with God. And when God states something, and he states it clearly so there can be no mistaking it, people are always looking for loopholes in the law. That's just the age in which we live. Everybody's always looking for an exception clause. And God calls sin, sin. And he says, all right, now you call it sin. And some people won't do it. And if you don't do it, you're not right with God. It's as simple as that. And if your heart isn't right with God, you are vulnerable. You're like a man on a dark night without a flashlight, without any moonlight, without any starlight. And sooner or later, you're going you're to stumble and you're going to fall. Now, you can stumble and fall in broad daylight. Somebody puts an open manhole cover right in front of you. I mean, open manhole right in front of you. Remove the cover of the manhole. You, uh, you can, even in broad daylight, step into the thing. But you're not as apt to in the daylight as you would in the dark. And when an individual disagrees with God and says, God, I can buy everything but that. I, you know, I just absolutely, absolutely grieved my spirit during the election when Jimmy Carter... Was, a, was addressed by a group of reporters where they said, uh, you believe the Bible, um, and uh, the Bible says that women, or that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. What do you say about that? And they obviously were trying to trap him. But instead of being as wise as serpent and harmless as dove, he says, well, he says, uh, actually, that's one part of the Bible I don't happen to agree with. Good night, man. I mean, what in the world can you say? When he said that, even if he's president of the United States, I don't care. When he said that, he stepped into darkness. That's all there is to it. You can't disagree with what God clearly says. If you don't like it, that's your problem. But you've got to agree with it. Because God is God. Unless you want to be God, how many candidates do we have for that job? Even Jimmy Carter wouldn't want that. Not that he could qualify or any of us. But the point is simple. If you disagree with God when God speaks, you walk in darkness and you are vulnerable. And you could be the next deceived by the false doctrine that comes along just simply because you've opened the way by disagreeing with him. That's number one. Number two. Feed and lead the flock. Now that's, of course, addressed to leaders but I want you to understand 
that there is a sense in which we have others under us all of the time, our children, our families, our, our, those that are, are, uh, we've led to the Lord, and so on and so forth. We all have a shepherding responsibility to some degree or another. Take heed to yourselves. Take heed to the flock over which he hath made you the overseer to feed or to pastor the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And by the way, the word feed here, the word poimen, means to lead and to feed. It's the idea of leading. It's the idea of feeding. It's the idea of protect. It's the idea of discipline. Incidentally, it is not, it does not mean to tend in the sense of the, of the, uh, uh, of, of binding up the wounds and all of those things. That's another function. But the idea is that of leading, feeding, protecting, and discipline, basically. That idea of poimain. All right? That's the second one. We need to feed. We need to lead. How do you feed the flock? How do you feed them? With the word of God. A built up congregation who does two things. There are two sides. Number one, you hear the word of God. Number two, you heed it. It's hearing and heeding. It's it's both sides. Hearing the word of God basically is gnosis. Knowledge understood. Heeding the word of God is when you apply it to life, you agree with God concerning it, say, I believe it, and that's what the scripture calls epignosis, full knowledge. Applied knowledge, actually. So therefore, you hear it and you heed it. And so the word of God has to be given out. That's not all. There's a third thing. Watch And warn. Verses 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that for the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Watch and warn. Paul had a responsibility to get people alert to the things that can happen. I, you know, it doesn't make a person a very popular preacher to do that. That's not a popular message. People that want to come to church to feel good, they don't get turned on by that very much. But you're to watch and warn. The word to warn here is the word uh, now thesis, which means to confront, actually. There needs to be a confrontation, head-on collision. You have to confront people with the claims of Jesus Christ and the dangers of false doctrine. Number four, study and pray. Verse 32. And now, brethren... I commend you to God. That's prayer. 
and to the word of his grace, that's study, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Study and pray. Every person who is a believer in Christ should be a student of the Word of God. You have a responsibility tonight. Go home, search the Scriptures, see if these things be so. Keep me on my toes. Make me study harder. Study it out. Now, we may have little differences. We may have little different twists. Because truth is like a diamond. It has many facets to it. And one person might view it from one viewpoint and see one facet, another from another viewpoint and another facet. That's why I don't get shook up when you read books where there's a slight disagreement in a particular interpretation or an understanding of a passage. That's not what we're talking about. But you have a responsibility to verify truth by your own personal study, and you have a responsibility to commend one another to the grace of God, to spend time in prayer for them. But one more biggie. Our time's all gone. Got to give you this last one. Whenever you're serving God, I don't care whether you're pastor, elder, deacon, deaconess, Sunday school teacher, whatever you're doing, if you want to prevent causing a difficulty in a body of believers, you must do what you do free from self-interest. Everything you do, if you say something so it'll be popular, if you say something so you'll get a following, if you minister to someone so that you'll please the crowd, so you please the masses, if you try to, to attain a following in some way or another, and I want to go right back to what we said in the very first message I brought on the subject of discipleship two years ago over two years ago. There is a lot of false discipleship today where people are saying, follow me. Do what I tell you to do. Instead of saying, follow Christ. Do what Christ tells you to. And there are a lot of people that are gaining followings. It's happening. It's some of the best intended people. They think that if they can get people to obey them, and make a commitment to them. Sometimes it's a simple thing. They'll say, you can't really become a disciple of Jesus Christ without commitment. And so we will meet at 5 o'clock in the morning. And if you're committed, then you'll be there every week. Asking for that kind of commitment is very quickly and easily transferred into the following of a man who says you must be there at 5 o'clock in the morning rather than being there out of conviction that that's what Christ wants you to do. Men have a constant 
danger of doing what they do out of self-interest. And I constantly wrestle with this as Valley Church grows. I do not, I will not do what I do, minister the way I minister in order to gain a following of people. And if in the process of our teaching the Word of God, we lose half of the congregation, I mustn't allow that to become ever an issue with me. I have to teach the Word of God. If God sends growth, fine. If He doesn't send growth, fine. And in this day and age, you're, you're judged so much by growth. The man that preaches a message and loses half of his audience is not the popular preacher today. He's not the one that people will say, oh, he's doing great. And you know what? You've got to come to the place in your ministry where you say, I don't care. How many did Christ salvage out of all of the people he preached to? 120. He wasn't a half bad preacher either. He was the greatest teacher that ever lived. As well as being the very son of God. And the best he could muster was 120. You do not do what you do out of self-interest. You do what you do to the glory of God. Verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have shown you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You give and you give and you give. If you get nothing in return, forget it. Just do it. And when we have people ministering the word of God on all levels, free from self-interest, it will prevent you gaining a following for yourself and leading people astray. The Church of Jesus Christ today has a lot of this kind of thing where people are simply gaining a following. They'll center it around a doctrinal difference many times where they'll take something that has been historically proven, a historical thing, and then they'll divert from that and people say, oh, it's some new thing. And you see, there are certain groups of people that the Bible talks about who just live to discover some new thing. If it's new, if it's novel, if it's got a new twist to it, if it sounds a little different, it's got a little different language, and they, they usually will change the language, change the English language a little bit. They'll coin phrases and coin words. And you see, you can identify them by the words that they use. And so they'll use this little catchphrase. And they'll say, this is such and such. And everybody will latch on to that. And they begin to follow him. And you, you begin to have an identity. It's like the Gnostics. They had an identity. They had passwords. They had a special little speech that only they could understand. And they followed these men to their destruction. Beware of those who simply try to gain a following for themselves. Follow Christ. He's our leader. But there will be division. Because this kind of person 
will be found in every age. So don't let it bother you. Just keep doing the job. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this stern but good word to our hearts. Use it, we pray, and may it be to your glory. We pray that we may leave here tonight with a real sense that you have taught us. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good evening.